just did snow day this past Sunday. Had an absolute total blast out there going down a 10-foot slide. And uh, we got to throw some snowballs at each other here in Texas, which was a second opportunity we've had a chance to do that. And uh, this was a little bit more joyous than the first time around. So I uh, I would encourage you guys to um, let that uh, have its effect in uh in rejoicing in our regathering as a faith family. And so I would like to show you just a small clip, a little taste of what took place this past Sunday. Take a look at the screens. Yeah, 
out of the book of Second Peter on um, this subject, from faith to love, knowing Christ, knowing Christ. And we, there's these eight qualities that the Apostle Peter gives us that grow each step that he says, have faith in your life, have virtue in your life, have knowledge in your life. As you, as you build these things in your life and you continually do them, you continually grow in them, you will be effective and fruitful in your life for Jesus Christ. You will be prepared for the glory of Jesus that is going to be revealed, that is coming. And he's setting up this whole conversation. By the way, it's a commercial for Wednesday nights. On Wednesday nights, we're going through this book of Second Peter. So if you, if you haven't started, just come on out and join in. Uh, love to have you. But what he's doing in Second Peter, he's talking to false teachers who are leading believers astray. They've grown up inside the body. They're leading believers astray, leading them uh, uh, in lifestyles that are apart and outside of Christ. And he's saying, look, here it is. Here is the, the qualities of Christ, the moral, excellent character of Christ. And if this is demonstrated in your life and it starts with knowing him and his grace in your life and you continue to come back through this process of his grace working out in your life, guess what happens? There is a glory that's gonna be revealed in you that you can't imagine. He's bringing, how many know that we live in a world of chaos? How many know that that chaos is very often on the inside of us? Okay, I won't talk about you. That chaos is very often on the inside of me. These, but in the person and being of God, he is by nature the one who brings order to chaos. And by applying Knowing Christ in our lives over and over, we literally bring order to the chaos of our lives. And then what we do is we bring it to those around us. As we have the order of Christ in our lives, then our family members, our loved ones, our neighbors, our co-workers, our communities, that grows out of who we have become. It's not about what we do, it's about who we are. And that's what these qualities are all about. The goal is fruitful and effective in knowing Christ. So the first step we talked about was faith. Everything begins in faith. And what is faith? Faith is very simply put. It is a response to a loving God who has literally given everything to us. It is that, that response is our faithfulness, believing loyalty. That's what, that's what David lived. He was one who lived believing loyalty unto his God. Listen, the Bible tells us everything about David's life. It talks about how he screwed up, how he did right, but in the end, his heart was what? After God. He had believing loyalty, faithfulness to God in the God who first demonstrated what? His faithfulness to us. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So the first step is is looking to the cross and being faithful to him. From that place, he has granted us his righteousness, moral excellence. Step two, virtue, moral excellence. We have been given the character and nature of Christ and we're to live out from that place. Uh, Charles Biggs puts it this way. Faith is to be supplemented by virtue. What is virtue? Virtue is right conduct under discipline 
by which faith is developed, good habits are established, and the, and the mists of passionate desire are dissipated. I, I love that definition. Why? Because as we develop the character of Christ in our life, it grows our faith. As our faith grows, the character of, life, of Christ grows. These are connected. Each one of these, as we study them, you'll see they're connected to the one before. They're steps on. So that takes us to our, our subject for this morning, knowledge. There's a, a lot written about it. We're, gonna, we're just going to introduce the subject this morning. We're going to touch on it this morning. We'll, be, we'll start with it this morning. Darley Charles, J. Darley Charles says this. He says, the knowledge of God makes possible our growth in grace and peace. The knowledge of God, catch this, knowing God makes possible our growth in grace and peace. This is why Peter starts his letter with these two verses. I mean, with this verse. He starts his letter with this verse. He says this. He says, may, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and, the, and, of, and of Jesus our Lord. May it be multiplied. Multiplied means what? It doesn't just happen one time. It doesn't happen two times. Grace and peace is something that becomes multiplied. It grows. Okay, snow day. You, if you ever, anybody ever build a snowman? You got a couple of people build a snowman? Oh, it's really cool. You start off with this small little ball of snow like this, and you put it, and you begin to roll it. And you roll it in the snow, and more snow grows on top of it. And you got to kind of roll it in different directions to really get it. There's, there's an art to snowmanship. But anyway, you roll it, and as it rolls, it grows, and it gets bigger and bigger. This is the grace of God in our life. Grace isn't something that, that God bestows one time, his unmerited favor. Okay, he overlooked my sins, now I'm in, and I'm just hanging on until I get there. Grace is something that is to be multiplied, to be grown. And when we grow in it, we grow in peace. Knowledge of God, knowing Christ is a process that is built in our life. It's why Peter starts his letter with it, and guess, what the, guess how he ends his letter? But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To, be, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. He begins and ends with the fact that this is a process that we grow in. So, having said that, let me say this. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul. He said, not that I have obtained, but I am pressing on to the upward call of God. Not that I have obtained, but I am pressing on. In other words, I'm standing here before you in the same way the Apostle Paul, I love those words from him. I'm standing here in the same way that this is a process in all of our lives. I'm not standing here saying, man, I've got the corner on knowing Christ. I can tell you everything there is to know about. No, I'm saying I am growing and knowing him. And wow, are you growing too? Because if we're not, we're going backwards. All right. So what is grace? Grace is the empowerment to live the morally excellent life of Christ, not the freedoms from the demands of it. Grace is the empowerment to live the morally excellent life of Christ, not the freedom from the demands of it. Um, you 
You know, when I, I go back and I read the Sermon on the Mount, and I, I've one time I took the entire Sermon on the Mount, and I make like all the points of it, and uh, being a peacemaker, being pure in spirit, uh, being humble, being, um, um, uh, and then going through all of the attributes that it looks like to look like Christ. List them sometime. It's an amazing exercise to do, you know, trusting him in all things and, and uh, uh, all of the character traits it takes on. And I sat down and I, and I looked at that and I went, okay, that's what it means to exhibit the morally excellent life of Christ. And I went, that's good stuff. That's awesome. That's how I want to be. And then I stood over here and went, oh, Lord, how do I get there? You see, and and we have presented, unfortunately, uh, so often in the church, we present either one side or the other. Because we present grace that says, what? I I can come before him in all of the muck, all of the mire, everything that has... Uh, um, that has been wrong in my life and I can come before him in his grace and he, he in no wise kicks me out. It doesn't separate me from him. He cuts that off. He severs that off and he washes that. And, and that becomes then a, a means by which I live life. I just, why? Because I screw up and I screw up and I screw up and I look at my screw ups as bigger than my ability to live out that morally excellence. I see this moral excellence over here and I go, I just can't make it. And so I give up and I say, well, it just must be that God's grace is going to be good enough. And I want to hang on by my fingernails till I get there. And so that ends up becoming license. And the false teachers and Peter end up saying, hey, look, we can just live how we want. After all, we got God's grace. It gets to that point. But then I can get to this other extreme where I look at this morally excellent uh, um, uh, uh, pattern of Christ and I, got, and I can say, listen, this is, this is what we're to be like. And it becomes like this guilt and shame and pressure on us that we are trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we are pushing forward and we're pushing others to and driving other people away. And what I'm here to say, it's not either of those extremes. We are called to know him. When we know him, he changes us. And as we go through this process, those things that are the flesh begin to fall off. Those things that are him begin to come out. Listen, let me, I'm going to make this super real. I've been married 30 years. I love my wife deeply. We have a good relationship. And there's stuff in my life I'm still working through to get out. Just yesterday, we're in the kitchen and we're just doing stuff and you know, uh, she was feeling something from certain pressures and she said something to me and I, and I gave her that look. Yeah, it wasn't real good. It didn't look like Jesus. Let me say that. And then, and then me, you know, being a guy, I forgot about it. Now, I will say this, that's because in the moment that my flesh jumped up, right after that, I realized that's my flesh. I don't want to act in that. I don't want to behave that. I don't want the words to come out to follow that. So I cut it off and I stopped it. This is part of why I forgot it. 
That is growing in grace. Because there was a time when that wouldn't have happened. The words would have followed that. But my wife, God bless her, said a few minutes later, when I'm acting nonchalant, you gave me that look that hurt. I had forgotten. And then we had a hard conversation, but a good conversation. You see, this is what we're called to. Sometimes we live in this, and it's the grace of Jesus that brings those together. Amen? That is growing in knowing Christ. You see, being a Christian demands moral excellence, a moral excellence that we can't in our own strength accomplish. That's why there's grace. That's why it says knowing him gives us the grace to have everything we need, the complete moral excellence of Jesus in our life. That's what Peter's trying to say. That's what Peter's trying to say, grow in these things. Now, how do we know, go to the next slide. How do we know that this is true, that, that uh, freedom from moral excellence isn't what we're called to? I'll tell you how we know. It's very simple. What is the biggest complaint skeptics and non-believers have against Christians? Exactly. Immoral lifestyles. You say one thing and you do something else. You see, there are two phrases that I get the sentiment. I get the sentiment, but the sentiment doesn't make the full reality of them true. Number one is I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Number two, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. Nice. Heard those? I'll tell you what that sounds like to somebody else. Sounds like outside to somebody that says, that's an excuse. That means your Jesus doesn't have the power to change you. Now, I get the sentiment. The sentiment is, when I'm over here, when, 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 that, when that look comes out, I go, oh, there's that part. That's the flesh. But if I stay there saying grace is good enough to overcome that, then I have missed the point of the gospel. The gospel is that my life is transformed. I need to bring that to Jesus. I need to know him more. I need to build in my inner life with him so that he not only washes us and cleanses it, thank God that he does, but that I can develop to be more like him. How many know that the term moral excellence is literally ubiquitous, literally synonymous with what Christianity is supposed to mean? But how many of us see ourselves as on a quest or a goal to have the moral excellence of Christ? Not as a condemnation, not as a guilt, not as a shame, but as a journey to live him, to know him. Why is it quiet? (laughs) 
You see, this is why I, Charles Biggs says, goes on and he says this, this. This is why virtue leads to knowledge. Not because knowledge is not about spiritual mysteries. There are spiritual mysteries and, and they are all revealed in Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the mystery that's been hidden and revealed. There are spiritual mysteries. But, but of the goodness and knowledge is about the goodness and reasonableness of the will of God. Do we know the goodness and the reasonableness of the will of God in our life? Knowledge is that which makes a friend separate from a serp- servant. Check this out. This is Jesus at the Last Supper. This is recorded in John. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. You see, it starts off. Here is the moral excellent uh, uh, attribute that I am calling you to. You are to love one another as I have loved you. Well, how did Jesus love us? The cross. Ouch. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Ooh, something's being said here. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. He just turned the tables. He's not, he says, listen, I'm not telling you a set of commands because I want you, because I'm demanding you to go out and be my servants and serve me. I'm giving you a set of commands that exhibit who I am and you are exhibiting me and we are friends. Look, this is an amazing thing. Where, where, where do we first see, anybody know where we first see friends in the Bible? Abraham. Abraham was a friend of God. Why was Abraham a friend of God? Because God told Abraham what he was going to do. There was a knowledge that Abraham received from God that was about, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. Abraham's negotiating with God. Hey, what if there's, you know, 50, 50 righteous people in that city? What about 20? What about 10? He's interceding. He's a friend of God because he's come to know God. And where did that start? It all started Abraham believed God. It started in faith, faithfulness, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. What God is desiring is that we trust him. We trust him. Yep, yep. Jesus is saying, this is hard, but trust me. There's good reason for it. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. Do you catch this? See, the command isn't, again, it's not just this great command of moral excellence over here so that you go and serve and you go do this. The command is what? Listen, I am giving you this so that I am your friend. And when I am your friend, the very purpose for which you were called, I have called you by name. I love this scripture in, in Ephesians. Go look it up. It says this. It says that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the earth. 
Before God created time, matter, and space, before any of it existed, you existed in his mind. He thought of you. He planned for you. He intended you. He placed you here for this moment, for this time, and this generation. And now he's telling you, this is what I want you to know, to be the fullness of who you were called to be. And when you know me, you will know that. And when you know that, you will be fulfilling everything you were intended for. And by the way, you want to know how I get my prayers answered? The same way you will. You'll ask the Father in my name, and he will grant it because you already know the plan. You already understand. These things I command you so that you will love one another. J.N.D. Kelly says this. He says, uh, to this... uh, Uh, must be added knowledge. Notice this. This is the Greek word we're dealing with here in this passage, which here stands not so much for the knowledge of Christ in terms of which the writer understands Christian faith uh, as for discernment of God's will and purpose. The word contains a... uh, Let me stop there for a minute. What he's saying is, it's not just that you understand, to, to know him, to have this knowledge. It's not just you understand, okay, Jesus died for me on the cross. God loves me through this. He wants me. It's not that we just understand the tenets of the gospel. It's not that we get our creed down. It's not that those things aren't important. They are important. Correct knowledge leads to correct action. We need those things. But, it, but it's, what he's saying uh, is even more. He's saying this, it's for discernment of God's will and purpose. Knowing him is to know his will and purpose in your life, to discern his will and purpose. Paul puts it in Ephesians this way, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Philippians, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. The writer of Hebrews puts it a different way. But solid food is for the mature. Those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What, what the scholars are saying here, what they're saying, when we get to this word about knowing, knowing him, having knowledge, it's about knowing, having the ability to understand, to discern is to understand, to distinguish the difference between what is good and evil. And I love this verse right here. Do you know why I love this verse? Because it's not a one-time thing. It's a practicing. It's a trying it. It's putting effort to it over and over. And then, and then eventually as we do it, we ah. Okay, so... You have two kinds of children, right? You have the kind of children the father says, don't put your hand on the stove, you'll burn yourself, and the child walks away. Then you have me. The father says, don't put your hand on the stove, you'll burn yourself, and you ah, that burns! I just learned to distinguish that the word of my father was correct. Maybe. Well, the dial's a little lower this time. Maybe it won't burn as much. Three people are getting that. (laughs) I love this picture, um, this image I found. This is out of Proverbs. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, 
Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Okay, so there is this, there's this paradox. It's this paradox about knowing God. Because there is nothing the Lord desires more than for you and I to know him. There is nothing. This is eternal life, that you would know the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. There is nothing he desires more. But God demonstrated his love for us, and then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is the one faithful to us. He is the one that makes the way. I chose you, we just read. He chooses us. He comes to us. He speaks to us. There is nothing he desires more. But there is another side to this that is our part in the Scriptures. And that our part is, Jeremiah puts it this way. You will see uh, if um, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Solomon is writing it here. He says, you, if you seek it like silver and, and search for it like hidden treasure. If I told you right now, you know, I was going through the archives down at the clerk's office in the, the property archives. And I found this old, I mean, it was dusty, this old archive to your property. It was your house. It was amazing. Look at, I mean, this, this looks like a treasure map. Do you think this might be a treasure map? I mean, there, it says something about buried silver in your backyard. I mean, here it is. I mean, it even tells you how to find it. If you believed that, you would not be sitting here right now listening to the rest of this message. You'd be out there, post hole diggers, shovel, whatever, bring the backhoe in. Whatever it took to find it. And, and so this is the other side of it. Here is the voice of God that is continually calling us, but, but there is another piece to it. And there's an awesome story in the Bible that highlights this. So Jacob, um, who has been uh, a nemesis to his brother Esau from even coming out of the womb, right? He's got his brother's heel as he's coming out of the womb. And, and you know, he, he steals his uh, birthright. Then he, he steals his blessing. Um, and then, you know, fearing that he's going to die, he's like, I, I'm, I'm heading out of town. So he, he goes to leave the country and halfway out of the country, the Holy Spirit shows up. God is chasing him. God won't leave him alone. God has chosen him. And the Holy Spirit shows up. He has amazing revelation. He begins to understand who God is, but he's still, uh, he's still like, I still got to get out of town because Esau's back there. And he goes and, uh, um, then he gets to everything that he did in his life happens to him. Anybody ever feel that way? Okay, and, and so finally, he's like, okay, it, it, it's been, you know, 20-some years. I'm going, I'm going back home. I've got to get out of here. I've got to go back home. The Holy Spirit's saying go back home. So he heads back to town, and he realizes, i got to face the music. i got to face Esau. And where does he go? But he goes to God. And there's this scene. There's this scene where he meets this divine being and he wrestles with this divine being and this divine being is literally trying to get away from from Jacob I mean he's trying to do everything he can to get away from Jacob and Jacob will not let him go he's I mean I could just picture this wrestling match I mean he is holding on at everything and and and, and every time he's pushing him away he's grabbing him again you know uh, um probably, probably no holds barred wrestling match going on here 
and this story is all about us wrestling with God. How much do you want to know him? How much do you want to know him? And so uh, finally, it's the light's about ready to come up and, and this divine being says to him, says, listen, the light's starting, the sun's starting to come up. I'm done here, let go of me. He says, no, I'm not letting go until you give me a blessing. He says, okay then, what's your name? Now, if this is, you know, the angel of the Lord, does he not know his name? Uh, God, really? What did Jacob say the last time somebody asked him what his name was when he wanted a blessing? Lied through his teeth. Oh, my name's Isaac or Esau. See, God knew what his name was. But not only was he wrestling, he had to be honest. He had to be honest. He said, I'm Jacob. And then some, two things happen. So no longer will I call you Jacob. You're now called Israel. It means you will struggle with God and prevail. There is a prevailing when we struggle with him. There is a knowing him when we struggle with him. But then something else re- kind of like, it's like, Ouch. The angel touches his hip and knocks it out of socket. There was a cost to knowing him. You ever notice when it knocks it out of his hip, it changes how he walks. God wants to change how we walk. He wants to change how we walk. And when we know him, we will walk differently. But to get there, we have to wrestle this thing we call the flesh. And it hurts. It's going to knock it out of socket. I did not want to have that conversation with my wife. I needed to have that conversation with my wife. She needed for me to have that conversation with her. That hurt When you seek it, you seek it like silver. You search for it like a hidden treasure. If I were looking for silver, if I were looking for a hidden treasure, I could care less about the scrapes on my knuckles as I'm digging that dirt. I could care less about the muscle pains in my arms as I'm trying to get it out. I could care less if I get dirty and dirt on me. When I am looking for, my goodness, there's a treasure. I'm going to be, this is all. I am going to do what it takes. I don't care. Now, the amazing thing in all of this is grace comes into this because it's the grace of God that's even strengthening you and enabling you to do even that. What do we have that wasn't given to us? How many of us, as we're going, you know, you know we're developing in the womb, you know, we're going down the, 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 we're going down the um, assembly aisle, right? And you go, okay, God, I'll take, uh, you know, uh, two of those. I'll take, you know, well, that gift there. I'd like to be able to do that. I'll have, how many of us decided all that? Really, and even if you were able to do that, it had to come from somewhere else to begin with. 
is working in you. He is constantly calling us, constantly drawing us to this. Now, it says this. It says, the fear of the Lord, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Okay. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. This is a weird phrase to me. It's been a weird phrase for a long time. I mean, I've heard, you know, most time you, you hear people teach on this. Well, the fear of the Lord, that's not like being afraid of God. That's like, you know, he's just so awesome. And I, I hear it described like an electrical panel. You know, I've worked on an electrical panel. And when you're working on an electrical panel, you have great fear. In fact, there was one time I was working on an electrical panel. And um, I'm, I'm wiring, wiring it up. And I had to wire it hot. And I've got my hands in there. And I'm like real, you know, a little bit sweat coming down as I'm doing this. And I got my hands and go real safe. And, and pagers had just come out with vibration on them at the moment. And I had this pager in my pocket. And here I am sweating like this. And all of a sudden, this pager goes off. I'm like, ah! I've heard the fear of the Lord described that way. And it's not wrong. It's not wrong. Because... You know, to, to contemplate the greatness of the goodness of God and for us to come, to be able to come into that presence. I mean, oh my goodness. But, you know, C.S. Lewis says it's like, you can't look at the sun, but without the sun, you can't see anything else. That's like the greatness and the glory of God. Okay, so there's a sense of that. But yet, Isaiah tells us that one of the spirits of Messiah, which means one of the spirits of Jesus, is that he is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And when I think of Jesus, I just don't think of him in that sense of fearing the Father in that way. I do see him in respecting that way, but I don't see anything in fear of a relationship. So I I read one place, and I love this. Jesus didn't do anything that was outside of the will of God. He didn't do anything that was outside of the will of God. That is hungering for the fear of the Lord. When we desire to understand not wanting to do anything outside of the will of God, like we're chasing after silver, like we're chasing after hidden treasure, we're going to find what it means to know him. And when we find what it means to know him, he's going to exhibit and come out of us. Does that make sense? I'm going to close with this. This is a, uh, one of my devotionals from A.W. Tozer. And this will be our closing devotional, seeing as, the, uh, as they're playing. Y'all just close your eyes and just hear these words and listen to them. And at the end is a prayer, and we'll pray it together. We must be concerned with the person and character of God, not the promises. Through promises, we learn what God has willed to us. We learn that we may claim, what we may claim is our heritage. We learn how we should pray, but faith itself must rest on the character of God. Is that difficult to see? Why are we not stressing this in our evangelical circles? Why are we afraid to declare that people in our churches must come to know God himself? 
Why do we not tell them that they must be get beyond the point of making God a lifeboat for their rescue or a ladder to get them out of a burning building? How can we help our people get over the idea that God exists just to help run their businesses or fly their airplanes? God is not a railway porter who carries your suitcase and serves you. God is God. He made heaven and earth. He holds the world in his hands. He measures the dust of the earth in the balance. He spreads out the sky like a mantle. He is the great God Almighty. He is not your servant. He is your father. You are his child. He sits in heaven and you sit on earth. And let's pray this prayer. Lord, we fall on our face before you in worship today. Forgive us for those times that we've treated you as though you were our servant. We're your servants, Lord. We humble ourselves before you. Help us to know you. Amen. Amen.